1: Hello everyone, I'm Paris Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership with Tom Fox, hosted by Richard Lummis. What makes a great leader? Is it genetic or can you learn leadership skills? Join Tom Fox and Richard Lummis in this podcast, where they consider leadership from a wide variety of perspectives, academic, behavioral science, history, popular culture, the movies, and much more. You'll learn about specific tactics and strategies that you can bring to your own leadership toolkit. 12 O'Clock High is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network.
0: Hello, this is Richard Lummest. I'm here with Tom Fox for another episode of 12 O'Clock High, a podcast about leadership. In these discussions, we draw what we hope are interesting examples from our own experiences, history, business, literature, and politics to examine what constitutes good leadership and extract lessons we can use to improve our own leadership skills. Welcome back, Tom.
1: Thank you, Richard. Uh, We're
0: continuing our series on presidents today. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt served as the 26th president of the United States from 1901 to 1909, having served as the 25th vice president from March to September of 1901, and as the governor of New York before that. Uh, Because his life, although surprisingly short, was so varied and interesting, at least to us, we'll be splitting it into five parts, the third of which will deal with his actual presidency. Today we're going to talk about his early life from his birth in 1858 up until about 1887. Second part will deal with his political career up until the assassination of William McKinley in 1901. The third part will deal with his presidency from 1901 to 1909. Fourth will deal with his time with the Progressive Party until the election 1912. And then the fifth and finally will deal with his later years. Tom, you want to tell us a little bit about his family background and early life?
1: Sure. Uh, He was born into a very wealthy family in New York City in uh, the uh, mid-19th century. His uh, father, um, rather, um, he uh, had a uh, very well-heeled education, and that was one of the things that that struck me about his very early life. Uh, He took science, philosophy, rhetoric, uh, Latin and Greek, Uh, He was a member of um, the uh, Alpha Delta Phi Literary Society. He attended Harvard. He was a member of the Porson Club. He was editor of the Harvard Advocate. Um, His father died when he was, I think, 18 or relatively young. And uh, this uh, seemed to have a, a fairly big impact upon him. But the other things that struck me about his very early life, Richard, were his parents and uh, the well-known story of his asthma, he had a very uh, bad uh, case of debilitating asthma. He had poor health as a child. He experienced asthma attacks uh, that he claimed or described as being having the experience of being smothered to death. He was nevertheless energetic and uh, very inquisitive. He had a lifelong interest in theology that began probably because he couldn't really get out of the house. And so he, he studied a lot. His father had a great influence on him. His father had helped to found the uh, Metropolitan Museum of Art, and uh, his family was very well involved in New York society at that time. He, uh, but early on, he um, became interested in uh, only reading, but also writing and while at Harvard, I think, he began a systematic study of the role played by the United States Navy in World War II, and that led to ultimately publishing the Naval War of 2012 when I believe he was The
0: War of 1812.
1: Yes, the Naval War of 2020.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's that's coming up next next month, I think.
1: Yes, next month. The Naval War of 1812. Um, And uh, not only did this really uh, presage or foretell a couple of, of traits and character leadership characteristics, I want to go into in a little more detail, of um, curiosity and lifelong learning, but also, Richard, it, it showed not only a commitment to in-depth study of a topic, but also sh- sharing that commitment through book publishing. And uh, that is a way to make your mark on a national or at least a wider stage, but also to for today to uh, position you as a subject matter uh, expert. And uh, that's one way to become an influencer uh, early on in your career as a business professional if you take a deep dive into a subject matter and then uh, can publish on it. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell talks about studying for 10,000 hours as a rough number uh, or working or playing music in the case of the Beatles to leading to greatness. Well, I see sort of uh, foreshadows of that in, in early Roosevelt. The um, he also, uh, and this, I don't think really gets enough play. He, he had, Uh, just terrible personal tragedy in his young life. He was married at age 22 uh, to Alice Hathaway Lee, another New York City socialite. They had a daughter two years later, uh, but his wife died two days after giving birth. And um, this left uh, Roosevelt just uh, distraught and led to uh, some of, uh, not acting out, because I don't want to suggest that, but Perhaps a depression that led him to the Dakotas uh, that we talk, uh, we'll talk about in a little bit. Also, he became a state assemblyman. Uh, now, this was the early, uh, his early political career. This was somewhat unusual for a well to heel New Yorker in this time to go into the New York State Assembly. He began in 1882. He took on early on issues of corporate corruption, taking on Jay Gould. And uh, these anti-corruption efforts uh, uh, propelled him to re-election so that he sat in uh, the New York State Assembly for the 1884 uh, election. And so uh, perhaps you could uh, pick up from there.
0: Well, there are a couple of other things that, that struck me about his early years. Um, the story about how he basically made his, himself physically through uh, effort and, and will is, is famous. And it really shows a lot about him that uh, he was that driven from an early age that in order to overcome his asthma and his uh, digestive problems, which I didn't realize he'd had until I read the recent biography. Um, but he he worked out for several hours a day. And at some point he was humiliated by some tough young kids. And so he took up boxing and uh, and boxed at Harvard as a lightweight. Um, although he did not win the championship, he fought well enough that, uh, it, it's still one of the defining, uh, parts of his career there. Um, his eyesight also was horrible. I don't know how he read what he did because he didn't know that he needed glasses until he was probably 14 or 15. Um, and it came about because he was trying to shoot birds and other people were able to shoot them and he couldn't really see them. And so that's when he, uh, he discovered that his eyesight was poor and he wore glasses for the rest of his life, um, known as Four Eyes in the Dakotas, uh, when we talk about him later. Um, but anyway, there, there, there's just a lot about his youth that I didn't know that uh, that's quite interesting. Um, as you mentioned, his wife died uh, in 1884, his first wife, Alice. Um, the other thing about that, his mother died the same day um, in the same house. Uh, he showed no interest in the daughter, uh, baby Alice, for years. Uh, he wrote two valedictories to his wife, and he never spoke about her again. Uh, he never talked to Alice about her mother, and there's no mention of his first marriage in his autobiography. I'm, I'm not sure what to make of all that uh, psychologically, but it's uh, certainly striking. Um, in the 1884 election, um, what was going on was uh, Roosevelt had, uh, in his, he was in his third term as an assemblyman, and he was up for speaker of the uh, assembly. The election was held in January, but uh, one of the political bosses at the time, a man named Warner Miller, had promised it to another man and engineered Roosevelt's defeat. Uh, The governor at the time was Grover Cleveland, showing how incestuous politics was at the time. But so at the state Republican convention in uh, Utica, New York, in April, so this is only two months after the death of his uh, wife and mother, uh, the the real contest was between James Blaine, a senator from uh, the state of Maine, versus the current president, Chester Arthur, And, of course, it would be humiliating for a sitting president not to be renominated by his party. But Roosevelt took the tack of supporting a third party, uh, uh, George Edmonds of Vermont, in part because Blaine had been instrumental in denying his father the post of uh, Collector of Customs in New York City, and in part because Blaine had some uh, improprieties in his past related to uh, railroad bonds. And one thing about Roosevelt is he was not only personally incorruptible, but he was uh, quite uh, puritanical in his view of of, uh, what was proper. Uh, Boss Miller supported Blaine, and Roosevelt, at the age of 25, and as a third-term assemblyman, through incredibly uh, energetic politicking and maneuvering, won the delegate at large positions for the National Convention um, for himself and three of his colleagues, which eliminated Miller as party boss and automatically raised Edmonds as a serious contender for the president. Uh, the national convention in Chicago was held in June, and it was really dominated by what was regarded as the old guard of the Republican Party, who had prospered since uh, the time of Lincoln under the spoils system and uh, corruption as a way of life. With Bribes and federal jobs being traded for votes. Um, again, Roosevelt made some really interesting decisions. The National Committee, Republican Committee's choice of chairman was a Blaine supporter. But uh, Roosevelt had his good friend Henry Cabot Lodge nominate John Lynch, who was a black congressman from Mississippi, and this is 1884. And Roosevelt made, his, made a speech in support. And then he engineered an alliance with the supporters of Chester Arthur, and they elected Lynch as convention chairman, Um, of course, infuriating the old guard, um, not for the last time. Uh, William McKinley first came into national prominence at this uh, convention, uh, trying to conciliate between the parties. Uh, Blaine ultimately won the nomination on the fourth ballot, And when McKinley asked Roosevelt to uh, make it unanimous, as was customary, he refused. Um, This was shortly before he left for the Dakotas. (laughs) And um, under stress, he he told a newspaper editor that he would give his hearty support to any decent Democrat rather than vote for Blaine. But even on his way out to uh, the Dakotas, he was stopped at St. Paul by another newspaperman. And he said that he had no personal objections to playing, and he would not bolt the Republican Party by any means. He and Lodge both took that stance, and it absolutely infuriated the reform wing of the Republican uh, Party. But showed that uh, Roosevelt was really willing to balance his his principles with his pragmatism. He had a keen political sense of how far he could go in in dragging the uh, the party his way. The story of his ranching in the Dakotas is uh, is is one of those fascinating things that uh, he went to a town called Little Missouri, which a year or so later became a ghost town. Um, There's a Spaniard named the Marquis de Morris who was building a giant meatpacking plant. And so he created this own town called Medora. Uh, on Roosevelt's initial trip, it was, which was actually the year before in eighteen eighty three. He'd invested $14,000 in cattle, which was not an insignificant part of his personal uh, wealth. In 1884, he invested another $26,000 with two partners. Um, This is also where he spent a lot of time hunting. He hunted buffalo, antelope, elk, deer, birds of all kinds, and grizzly bears. Um, He got called four eyes by a, a bully in a bar who was shooting up the place. And the bully demanded that he buy drinks for everybody. So Roosevelt got up and knocked him down, and kept hitting him every time he got up until he uh, until he knocked him out. <coughs> Excuse me. The uh, other thing about this is that struck me is how often he traveled. He kept going back and forth between the East and and the Dakotas several times a year. Um, he actually campaigned in support of Blaine against Grover Cleveland. And it looked like uh, Blaine was going to win the election until famously a minister on the stand with him. So the Presbyterian minister with Blaine said that the uh, rum, Romanism, and rebellion were the uh, themes of the election, which cost uh, Blaine the support of basically the Irish. Uh, Catholics in in New York and he lost the state. You know, the, the one remark almost certainly cost him the election. That was actually the best thing that could have happened to Roosevelt because if Blaine had won, he would have probably rewarded Roosevelt with some position. It would have tainted him forever with, with the corrupt uh, reputation of Blaine. Of course, because Cleveland won, he was not going to have any uh, government position, so he went back to Dakota, <clears throat> he returned to New York City before Christmas and in nine weeks wrote a 100,000-word book that was then published as Hunting Trips of a Ranchman, It was a huge commercial success. Then he went back to Dakota, built a house, bought more cattle. At this point, more than half of his inheritance was invested in the Dakotas. Um, he got secretly engaged to a childhood friend, Edith Corral, in November and stayed in New York for the uh, social season and then went back to Dakota. Um, Three men stole his boat and attempted to flee the area because a lynch mob was after them for horse stealing. He chased them for 12 days, over 300 miles, caught them, and delivered them to the sheriff. Just an incredible story. It was through ice-choked rivers, and and he ended up having to stay awake for the last 48 hours or so, holding them at gunpoint to get them to the sheriff. And that was really a, a case of pride. The boat was worth about $30, but he was a deputy sheriff, and so he felt that it was incumbent on him to enforce the law. Just the same sort of bullheaded principle that he showed a lot of other times in his career, as we'll see. Uh, At the time, the cattle market was collapsing, and the the sale of the cattle was unprofitable, and uh, two of his partners left and moved back east. He went to London and married Edith there because it was still regarded as rather scandalous how quickly he was getting remarried after the death of his wife. And later that winter, it was called the winter of the blue snow in Dakota, and he lost over two-thirds of his cattle to the, uh, the weather. Um, it was colder than anybody had ever seen. Um, other people lost everything. But he says, <clears throat> he said later, that if it had not been for his years in, in North Dakota, I never would have become president of the United States. And it wasn't so much his physical health, although that greatly improved from his time out there, um, but it was his association with, with working men, which um, completely changed his, his, uh, his way of dealing with the lower classes. As you pointed out, his early upbringing was, was pretty elite, and, uh, and this was, uh, opened his eyes to how a lot of people lived at the time. As a side effect, um, he got very interested in conservation because of the destruction of the environment in Dakota and the slaughter of the wildlife there, which he took active part in. And that also comes up a lot uh, when we start talking about his presidency. So, Tom, interesting early life. What conclusions can we draw from this?
1: Well, first of all, I've just uh, a comment on uh, where where we are now in his life, and his life is as well known, I think, perhaps uh, as any other president. But and now we look back and go, well, of course that makes sense. Of course he was going to be president. Of course he was going to be vice president. Of course he was going to do this, and of course he was going to do that. And and it really shows that um, there. Often, uh, while you may have a goal, uh, there are different ways to get to that goal. And I uh, really liked how you tied in his time in Montana to his evolution and thinking, particularly around working men, because he did have a very patrician upbringing and uh, early life. And the code showed him not only a different way to live, but a different class of people that he took on uh, their, their roles and their responsibilities uh, in his later political life. But there were three, I thought, key lessons that I picked up from studying the early years of uh, Theodore Roosevelt. First is that leaders are learners, and they're literally lifelong learners. From, uh, youth, uh, Roosevelt was a voracious reader. He even said, reading is a disease with me. His curiosity, his ceaseless learning never abated. The book, the classroom, the formal education, those were only venues for learning. They produced, um, uh, many different uh, educated and effective, so he got out in the field. So he combined the uh, life of ideas and the life of action, which was central to his own vision of himself, and I think how he was projected uh, as a leader. The uh, the second thing was uh, merit, that uh, he clearly, uh, and, and we'll see this uh, with the people he promotes, But his uh, vision was not that you were entitled to something, but that uh, you earned the right. And he worked extraordinarily hard uh, that leaders are created, uh, not born. And his life and work is an enduring answer to that question, uh, I think. He believed leadership is an ongoing project of self-creation. And I think one of the key themes that you and I have explored throughout this podcast series is curiosity, ongoing learning, but incorporating those into your own leadership toolkit and in your own business toolkit. Um, Roosevelt offered his life as a template for anyone seeking to recreate themselves uh, as an effective leader. And then the third thing is, and and once again, you really highlighted this, I think, talking about his uh, academic career and his work in the Dakotas was hard work. He was one hard-working son of a gun. We're going to talk about this, uh, I think, a little more at length. This is not, uh, you know, 2020. Uh, This is not 2000. This is not a law firm where everyone averages 3,000 billable hours a year. This is 1880s. And, And people just did not work as hard or as many hours. They worked as hard, but not as many hours and as intensely as they do now. And so he built a reputation, and that's why I really spent some time uh, talking about his uh, first book, uh, The The Naval War of 1812, one wide acclaim, on both sides of the Atlantic. He began work on the book while he was a student at Harvard and continued thereafter. Uh, He brought uh, this book writing project, showed several of his strengths, including his dedication to research, collecting and analyzing data firepower, ballistic logistics figures. Um, he double-checked his calculations. Uh, he published the book, uh, and it, it helped his standing with historians, admirals, and statesmen, as I, and as I mentioned, demonstrated him as a uh, subject matter expert. On the subject of hard work himself, he said some really interesting things. Uh, Nothing in this world is worth having or worth doing unless it means effort, pain, and difficulty. I don't pity the man who does hard work worth doing. I admire him. I pity the creature that does not work at whatever end of the social scale he may regard himself as being. So Roosevelt himself believed in hard work. And what we uh, really saw, I think, in this first podcast is – some of the beginnings of uh, what Roosevelt would uh, demonstrate later in life and uh, perhaps from his father, how he learned uh, some of these key uh, lessons, particularly around learning uh, merit and hard work.
0: Well, uh, and learning in particular, I think, um, I mean, you and I are both very interested, but one of the, one of the characteristics of, of his life was that he, as you said, he read, he, it's estimated he read some 20,000 books, Um, over the course of his life, and looking at some of his daily uh, diaries that you'll see, you know, make a speech, read, uh, write some letters, read, and uh, he he read every night before he went to bed, he frequently read over a book a day, Um, but then he, he assimilated that, and he was constantly drawing parallels between uh, what was going on in the world in his time, and um, his knowledge of history, especially classical history, and and drawing conclusions on the proper course of action from that. You know, I don't know how you can teach the level of energy that he displayed throughout his life. Um, I think that was that was certainly one of the keys to his um, appeal to everyone was his, his sheer dynamism. Um, and he also had a phenomenal memory for names and faces, which, which helped um, ingratiate him with, with people, uh, which is something that I think we could all work to be a little better at. But, uh, but yeah, I think those are, those are great lessons from, from this part of his life. And uh, as, as we'll see, he, uh, he continued a lot of these themes throughout his life. Um, Well, I guess that covers the the first period of his life. And uh, until next time, this is Tom Fox and Richard Lummis with 12 O'Clock High. And we hope you'll come back to uh, learn a little bit
1: more about Theodore Roosevelt. This is Tom Fox. I hope you enjoyed this part one of our five-part podcast series on leadership lessons from Theodore Roosevelt. I hope you'll join Richard and I through the month of July on this special series on 12 O'Clock High. 12 O'clock High, a podcast on business leadership, is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. We are also a proud member of C-Suite Radio. I hope you'll join us again. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to visiting with you next week on the Leadership Lessons from Theodore Roosevelt.
0: This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.